Bible, open a Bible, but get to Revelation chapter 2. We are drawing near to our end of our seven-week series entitled Letters to the Church. And uh, we've been looking at uh, Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3. And we have been looking at seven letters that Jesus spoke to the Apostle John about. And he is addressing seven specific churches 2,000 years ago. And again, I, I keep saying this, and it, we, we can't fall into the trap of thinking, you know, that was 2,000 years ago. Churches that no longer even exist in a place I've never been. So what in the world do I need to know about these seven churches? A lot. Because the reality is, even though Jesus spoke specifically to these churches about specific issues that they were going through, and he commended them for good things, and he rebuked them for bad things, how many of you know that truth still transcend time? All right? Um, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of hoping as we've looked at some of these churches, maybe you're, you've been like, wow, we're still doing the same stuff today. Or is Jesus commending us today for the things he commended them? So it's looking at the truth of what Jesus is saying to these churches and going, wow, I want to do what they did that was good, and I want to try to avoid what they did that was bad. And so today we're looking at one more church. We're looking at a church entitled Thyatira in a city of Asia Minor, which I keep reminding you is present-day Greece, or present-day Turkey, not Greece. And so today I want to look at um, a few more things about what do we need to know from this church? What, what, what's the takeaway from this church called Thyatira? And so today let's look at a few things and if you would, write this down. Let's begin with this first thought, the first thing that we need to know. We need to know that I should be progressively changing and growing. That you and I, as a believer in Christ, we should be progressively changing and growing. And so let's start there in chapter 2, verse 18. Let's see what Jesus has to say here. And he says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. All right, let's begin with this city called Thyatira. And the reality is, of all the seven churches, this town, this city, I mean all the seven cities, there were churches in the cities, this city, Thyatira, was actually the smallest and the least significant of all seven cities, all right? Which kind of makes me feel good because even though this city was small, insignificant, and was the least like, you know, off the radar compared to everybody else, it gives me hope because here's the thing. Jesus was concerned about this church in this very small town, very insignificant town. How many of you would agree that Woodhall, really compared to a lot of other cities around um, Illinois, really isn't that big or significant? Let's just be honest, okay? I mean, there are people in Galesburg who have never, they've, I mean, I've never had friends who lived in Galesburg, have lived there for years and decades, and like, Woodhall, never heard of it. We're 15 miles from Galesburg, and people are in Galesburg like, nope, too insignificant to know about it. But guess who does know about this church in this small town? Jesus himself. And how many of you know that's the only person that really matters? Okay, So Jesus knows this church, and he's talking about this church. Now, Thyatira itself, like I said, very kind of insignificant. Um, it was originally founded as a city um, actually to be a shrine 
to the ancient Lydian god, sun god. I don't even know how to say this, this sun god's name. It was Tyrimenius or something like that. So it was really founded to be a, a shrine. So this city was a, a, a pagan city, a false god worshiping city, kind of like all the others. Um, it actually came under control of the Roman Empire in 190 B.C. Um, that's about it. That's about the, the extent of the significance of this city. Now, we can know from Scripture in Acts chapter 16 that we get an idea of when the church possibly started in this city. Because in Acts chapter 16, when Paul was in the city of Philippi, which is a, a pretty well-known city because of the book of Philippians, and he, he spent a lot of time there, this woman by the name of Lydia from Thyatira came to Paul, and Paul was speaking to her and preaching to her and, and, and witnessing to her. And it says that her heart was opened up what he was saying and became a believer. And then he, she invited him back to Thyatira to stay with her, to preach, basically, to her friends. And I think we get the idea of that's when the church of Thyatira began. So that's pretty much all we know about this city, okay? But Jesus is very in tune to it. So he goes on, he looks look at what Jesus says about himself now. Remember, he's been introducing himself to, to all the churches, and he introduces himself again. He says, the words of the Son of God. Now, it's interesting that he says the Son of God. This is actually the only time the Son of God is used in the book of Revelation. And he uses it here because you notice um, th that, that uh, Thyatira was originally made for a sun god. Okay, and, and so Jesus is like, listen, there's only one God, and there's only one Son. And it's not the S-U-N God, it's the S-O-N of God. And so he's just kind of saying, um, let, let, let's get, let's get the, the facts straight. I am the Son of God, and there is no other Son God. And so he makes it, it, makes it well known of who he is, but he goes on, he says... I am the son of God whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, John actually got to see this. If you were to read chapter 1 in verse 12, it actually, he, he, when he sees Jesus in, the, in his glory, okay? It's interesting. The apostle John got to see Jesus in three different ways. He got to see him as a humble servant. He got to see him as the raised Savior. But now he gets to see him as the glorified strong one. Because he gets to see the glory of Jesus. And one thing he describes is his eyes and his feet. He says, man, his eyes were like fire and his feet were like burning bronze. And what that shows us probably is, is that the eyes of Jesus are like, are like fire. They were, how many of you know not literally on fire? He's being descriptive here metaphorically. That his eyes are so... They burn right through things. Nothing's hidden from the, the, the sight of, God, of Christ. Okay, There's nothing in this church that's hidden from Christ. And guess what? There's nothing in this church or in your life hidden from Christ. We may be able to hide things from people, but Jesus' eyes burn right through. There are things inside of us that, that people, no one around you know about. But guess who does? Christ. Why? Because his eyes are like burning fire. And they just penetrate and they go right to the core of who you and I are. But they're, but they're also 
his feet are, 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 are like bronze. And I think that's a picture of, of power and authority. All right. So Jesus is giving, giving the church an understanding. He goes, um, I know everything and I'm in charge of everything. I, I know it all and I have all power and all strength. And we're going to see that power and a strength um, come available here in a few moments. Because he's introducing himself for what this church is doing. And he's introducing himself as the one with power and strength and authority. And so he goes on. In verse 19, he says, I know your works. You see, there's the eyes of the flames of fire. He knows. He knows what they're doing. But he commends them for what they're doing. He goes, I know your works. He says, I first, he's like, I know your love. He's like, man, I know you love people. You love each other. You love the community. Man, you're, 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 you know, if you remember with Ephesus, he's like, man, you forgot your first love. He's like, you've abandoned that. Not these people. He is applauding them for how much they love one another. How much they love the, the, those who don't know Christ. How much they, they, they love others. What a great takeaway for you and I. That we don't, we're not like Ephesus, abandoning our first love. But man, we love people. We love each other. We love others. He goes on. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith. He's like, man, you've got a great faith. And, 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 and I know it and I see it. It's active. He goes on and he says, I, I know your service. Now, here's the thing. The first two actually connect to these last two. Because um, how we love, we serve. All right? The reality is, if there's something in me that says, I never want to serve, it means I don't have a deep love. It means I, I don't love people. Again, we're not going to be perfect at this, but the idea is if I love people, I will serve people. If I serve people, I will love people. And so Jesus is making a connection between their love and service. And then he goes on and he says, I know your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. You see, they have patient endurance because they have a faith. They have a faith in Christ. They have a faith in God. And the, 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 the faithful endurance they're going through is the suffering. All seven churches would have one thing in common. All these Christians in all seven of these churches would have had one thing in common in that time, and it was suffering. The Roman Empire caused, under Nero's leadership, he caused Christians to suffer horribly. And so Jesus is commending them for their faith in him and a patient endurance. What a great takeaway for us again. That we trust God. That when you are going through suffering, when you're going through the trial, the storm, no matter how hard, how bleak, how deep the water seems, how hot the fire is, guess how you and I get through it? By patiently enduring with what? Faith. Faith in him, faith in Christ, trusting he is working through this. You see, he sees this. He sees their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance. And look at right at the tail there. He says, and that your latter works exceed the first. This is really what he's almost commending them for. The NIV translates that. He says that you are now doing more than you did at first. What Jesus is saying, he's like, man, here's the thing. Um, I see your love. 
I see your faith. I see your service. I see your faithful endurance. Why? Because you're doing it more now than you did when you first became a believer. You see, sometimes um, we today as Christians, we get it backwards. We do a lot when we first come to Christ. We're really fired up. Man, Jesus saved me. And man, we jump all in. But after a few years, maybe a few decades, what do we do? We pull out. We just kind of put it in coast and slow-mo. We're just like, I'm good. We have this idea sometimes as, as American Christians that we can coast. That we can just... We, we, we think we have arrived. As a believer in Christ, we need to understand one thing. We never arrive. No matter how long we've been a believer, no matter how old I am in my age, we never arrive. You never come to the place spiritually where you can go, no, I'm good. I think I'm all right. I, I, I'm, I'm going to let those young kids do now that, that do all the work. I, I'm going I'm to take my, I'm retiring. I'm, I'm done. No. Jesus is commending them because where they're at now is greater than when they first began. He's like, man, you got to change. You, you're different. He's like, you're not the same. He, he's like, man, you, 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 you jumped out of the block strong and then you are even stronger now. He's like, you can look back at your life and realize, he's like, you, as a church, you can look back and go, hey, you remember where we were? We were fired up then. Man, we're even fired up more now. As believers, guess what you and I should be able to do? Look back on our life. And can you see that you have progressively changed and grown? You know, next Saturday, me and Paula will be celebrating our 20th anniversary. And often we love to just go, man, we're not the same, are we? I mean, if you knew us 28 years ago, you'd know our story, and you'd be like, you all are not the same. We can look at our marriage and realize we've changed. Our love is, you know, we're like a fine cheese, man. We have just gotten better with age. It's just the way it is. I mean, how can you not get better with this thing in your life? Bill likes that. He's chuckling. Ah, Doc, here we go. Got Doc thrown in there. If you weren't with us last week, I said I'd like to be called Doc in heaven. Ron's got it. He gets a star for today. But we, we look at our marriage and realize we've changed. And some of you are in the same boat. You can look at your marriage and go, man, we are different. You can look back through the years and go, you remember where we were when we began? And do you remember where we were when we were with, with little kids in the house? Do you remember when we were with teenagers? Now we're empty nesters. And you can look at each phase and go, we're different. As a believer in Christ should be the same way. That we can look back not, with, not looking at perfection, but progression. That's our faith in Christ. Progressively, year by year. Moment by moment, day by day, we are progressively changing, maturing, growing in Christ. You know, Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. He says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, 
to, <clears throat> to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, mutual affection, to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says to add to your faith, it's not like we can go buy this and, 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 and put it on. Adding means to grow in it. It means to change in it, to mature in it, to become different in it. So he's, he's, like, he's like, hey, hey, change in goodness. Grow in it. Grow in godliness. Grow in the knowledge of Christ. Grow in your love. Keep adding that stuff. Become more and more and more in it. Again, not perfection, but progression. And as a believer in Christ, all of us, whether you've been a believer for a year, 10 years, or 30 years, you should be able to look back. If you've been a believer for a year, you should be able to look back and go, man, a year ago, I had no desire to come to church. Now I never miss. After 10 years, you should be like, holy cow, I never did. For the first five years of, of, of being a Christian, I didn't do anything. Now I want to serve. Now I want to do these things. I want to be. You see, we should be able to look and progressively see the change and the growth. As a believer, can you look back and see that you have grown spiritually? Can you look back and, and, and look at your life and say, I have progressively grown and changed and matured in, in, in spiritual disciplines like prayer and Bible study and reading, serving, giving, things like that. Can you look back? You know, maybe some of you are like, man, I remember I would never give a dime to the church. I just felt like church always just wanted me. I'd never give. But now maybe... You're like, you know what? I honor God with my tithe. I honor him when I have an opportunity to give. I give. Why? Because you have changed and you've grown. Can you look back and can you see the, the change and the, the growth and the progressive um, the, and, and progressively moving in the fruit of the Spirit? Can you see love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness? Can you see the fruit of the Spirit? more in your life. Some of you, man, you, you, you could not drive your car and get in traffic without going, come on already, I'm honking your horn. And, but now you're like, eh, whatever. Why? Because you've grown in patience. You've matured in that. And you can see that you've progressively changed and grown. See, the truth is that, listen, gang, the truth is this. If Christ is my Savior, if he is in me, guess what he's going to do to me? He'll change me. He, he will progressively, throughout my days, cause me to be different. And the reality is this. If I say that I am a believer in Christ and I can look back on my life and I'm not changing I'm the same, more than likely you may not be a believer in the first place. We don't like to say that in America because everybody's a believer in America. Everybody's a Christian. Listen, if I had no Christ, Christ will change me. I will be different, not perfect, but progressively being different. And that's the first thing Jesus is saying here, that we need to know that we should be progressively changing and growing. Here's the second, the second thing. 
I must be spiritually discerning when it comes to teaching. I must be spiritually discerning when it comes to teaching. In verse 20, so Jesus commends them. Now comes the condemnation, though, the rebuke. He says, I have this against you. One thing about this church, unlike last week at Pergamum, Pergamum had like three things. At least this church only has one, you know. But how many of you know um, one thing is still too many, all right? But Jesus says, I have this against you. He says, um, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Okay, let me unpack this. There's a lot there. First, let's unpack when he says, um, calls this woman uh, Jezebel. All right, there's a woman in this church. More than likely, her name is not Jezebel, but Jesus is comparing her to the Old Testament woman found in 1 Kings and 2 Kings called Jezebel. And if you've never read about Jezebel, I'm going to give you a quick snapshot, okay? Jezebel was not the prom queen, all right? Um, wicked. Everybody just say wicked. She was wicked, all right? Um, she, she married King Ahab, who was not um, the chaser of Moby Dick at that time, um, but the king of Israel. And, and um, she uh, got to a point where she wanted to kill the prophet Elijah because Elijah like went off on these false prophets and um, had them killed and infuriated her. She just like blew her top and she's like, she's, she, told, she told Elijah um, in a memo, she's like, um, just as you did to these prophets, I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to skin you. I will kill you. And she made it her life mission to do it. She was able to incite her husband, Ahab. And the Bible says that Ahab acted more wickedly than any king in history. What kind of wife is that? I mean, could you imagine being married to either a husband or a wife that incites you to be so wicked that history remembers you that way? And she was able to get Ahab to act so wickedly that he was able to incite Israel into false pagan worship of the, of, the, of the god Baal. I mean, this woman was so wicked, she was able to get a king of Israel and the nation of Israel to turn from God. That's who Jesus is comparing this woman in the church to. Don't know her name. But Jesus like, he doesn't even name her. He's like, you're following that woman, Jezebel. Why? Because she was so wicked. She was wicked that she was leading and teaching and leading Jesus' people astray. But here's the problem that Jesus has in this situation. The problem so much isn't that Jezebel was wicked. The problem Jesus has with them is they weren't doing anything about it. Because look what he says. He says, this is what I have against you. You tolerate that woman. They tolerate her. She is not teaching them to be godly. She's teaching them to be ungodly. She's not teaching them to walk right. She's teaching them to walk into sin. And the, Jesus is like, are you kidding me? 
you're tolerating it. The people were like, eh, it's okay. It's no big deal. And I thought about this. Maybe, you see, and also it says that she, Jesus says that she called herself a prophetess, meaning she had this, she, she said she had this divine gift to be able to speak divine messages. But the reality is she was not speaking divine messages. She was teaching in a way that caused people to sin. And I sat and thought about this and I'm like, you know, maybe this woman was well-liked in the church at one time. Maybe this woman was very popular. She was well-known. She was respected. Maybe, I mean, I'm pretty sure she just didn't walk in the front door the first day and go, hey, I got a message and start telling people to sin. I have a feeling just like a snake in the grass, she got her way in, got her name known, became friends, part of a small group or whatever, and then all of a sudden, she begins to teach a deceptive, wrong message. And the people are like, yeah, that's good stuff. Man, she's so smart. She's a prophetess. I think what she's teaching is right. It sounds right, looks right. It's got to be right. And it was completely sideways. And she was teaching these people, and she was leading them astray. And the people, and they tolerated it. And it got people in a spiritual mess. You see, this is why for you and I, we have got to be so discerning today about who you listen to, about what you're being taught. You know, in Acts chapter 17, it says that Pete or Paul, he went into a city called Berea and he, he began to teach and preach. And here's the thing. These Bereans, they listened to Paul. They liked Paul. They, they received what Paul said. But here's what they also did. They went and checked the scriptures to make sure what Paul was saying was right. They were just like, well, hey, I, Paul, man, he's been on the circuit He's been planting churches everywhere. Paul's got a big name, and you know where he came from. Hey, I, I believe what he's saying. They didn't do it. They didn't take it at face value. They wanted to know. And listen, we need to understand that today, just because a preacher teacher is well-known, they may be on television, they may be on the radio, they've written a lot of books, Maybe they're a preacher in a big church, big ministry, nationwide ministry, worldwide ministry. You know, maybe they're a preacher that can just get the, they, they just stir the crowd up, man. People are jumping up and hooting and hollering. They can get it going. Let me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. That doesn't mean they're preaching biblically or correctly. We've got to understand that. It doesn't matter how famous they are. It doesn't matter how well-known they are. It doesn't matter if any of that, okay? Just because, and, and here's, here's the thing you got to do. When you listen to someone, okay? And, and, and I'm not, even me, I want you to be a Berean. But I believe, you, there, I believe you listen to WD, WDLM. Some of you probably watch TBN, you, 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 whatever. 
You got to ask yourself, when you're listening to someone, are they just talking about the Bible? They never read it. They never get into it. They just talk about it. They just tell the stories. Or do they paraphrase the Bible? Well, you know, the Bible tells us this, and they just paraphrase it. Do they take, like, maybe one scripture out of context, and they preach an entire message on it? Do they um, preach in a way where they are saying things, but it's not scriptural? What they're saying is they just keep saying things, saying things, and they may throw a scripture in there to support what they want to say. You see, all of that is unbiblical preaching. Biblical preaching is open your Bibles and let's dig into this text. And they break it apart and they feed it to you. You know, I can tell you as sure as I'm standing here right now, there are preachers on the radio and on TV and they're famous, they're popular, they're the rock star. And they are not preaching biblically. But they have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people watching them, listening to them, and reading what they have to say. I'm telling you, I, I, I watched this one guy, this one preacher, and, and he has the, the charisma. He has all the antics going on, on on the stage. And I listened to him for 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And he, he had a five-point message, and in those 20 minutes, he gave his three points as, I don't remember what the message was about, but he gave his three points as to why this is. And in 20 minutes with three points, do you know how many scriptures he used? None. And I'm sitting there going, dude, you've preached for 20 minutes, you've given three points, and where in the world are you getting your, your, your truth from to support your points? From him. He talked about the Bible, he talked about God, he talked about Jesus, but he gave no scripture to support what he was saying. You see, that's unbiblical preaching. We need to understand how important it is to be discerning. Each week, I've asked Paula to come up. I'm going to have her share something with you that she shared with me yesterday. But each week, I... Each week, every single week, I labor hours upon hours studying and reading and, and diving into it because I, I don't think I'm the sharpest tack in the box. And so I spend hours just laboring over Scripture because I want to make sure that when I step up here, I have done my best to deliver Scripture to you that I am feeding you healthy. I'm feeding you messages that you walk out and it's been challenging, convicting, it's growing you. I don't want to just spoon feed you little sermonettes with some spiritual scriptural jargon in it and go, have a good day. Paula told me something yesterday and it just kind of you know, gave me a good feeling that I think I'm okay. And I want her to share what she shared with me. Okay, growth in our marriage is the fact that I have a microphone right now, which is super fun for me, so. It's, okay, it's 11 o'clock. Okay, okay. Um, anyway, um, one of the, um, I go back, 
I see things um, online and I follow um, other pastors and ministries and stuff that I that I have found are very biblical and and I trust them over time. You know, I mean, you can see something, but you have to trust over time. And and so, um, and I'm I'm realizing how sideways things can get so quickly, and um, to test us. And one of the um, <clears throat> sources of good biblical teaching that I have found is in Proverbs 31 um, ministries. Some people um, use the First Five app and a lot of things from Proverbs 31. I haven't found anything come out of them that um, was sideways. And so, <clears throat> or so far, we'll keep our eyes open. And so, but anyway, and um, Joel Mutamali is um, the theological uh, overseer of um, theology for Proverbs 31. And so their podcasts and their teaching and their devotions and everything, like he is overseeing that. And so anyway, um, I was listening to the weekend teaching yesterday because I do um, devotions each morning um, with their ministry. And so anyway, they were teaching on um, death and dying. And Joel Mudamali and Lisa Turkers were talking and they said, this is going to be a little hard to take, you know, this is, this is not going to be easy, you know. And so back when Jim preached on the resurrection, which was super important to me, um, just, I don't know, that I'm remembering that and just going, I, I totally, we need a strong basis of understanding of the resurrection and our future. And so he started talking, and, and Joel Mutamali, I was like going, Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And the, so they were talking, and do you remember when Jim was talking about Sheol? Like, that people in the Old Testament, because this, this is a point for people, they're like, how is it that the people in the Old Testament didn't have Jesus? How are they saved, you know, or whatever. And, and I remember when I was sitting right there, and Jim started preaching about Sheol, and going that there was kind of this holding place, and that that wasn't actually heaven or hell, you know, it was like this holding place and whatever. And and I was like, I remember going, I've never heard that before. And, you know, what was Jesus doing um, before he was raised from the dead? And he went and got the people that were faithful to God. And they were kind of held in that weird place, that Sheol. And so because that seems so weird, I mean, it seems so Lord of the Rings to me, you know, like they're held in Sheol depths of the earth or whatever, you know, and then the other people are, then they go to Hades and it's like, oh, you know, and so it's hard teaching. And I remember when he taught it and I'm just like, wow, that I, I saw the scripture for myself, which I needed to do. And, and I saw it. Well, anyway, Joel Mutamali was talking yesterday. And so he starts walking through this. And I mean, even Lisa Turkers was going, I know, I know this is, this might be kind of strange because I don't hear that preached. Um, have never heard that in my whole life. And so anyway, so I kept watching them walk through it yesterday and I was like, I already know that. Jim already preached that. Oh my gosh, we are, I already know that, you know, and these other people are like, slow down, we gotta grab our mind. But anyway, all that to say, 
I am so grateful and even more um, as I see, you know, we are really in a culture of so much information and you have to discern information and you have to discern the truth. So many loud voices all over the place. And I'm so grateful to be taught well, to be grounded and fed well. You hear the word, yes, but also like when we, when he's gone through so much of the Old Testament, how much did you see Jesus in the Old Testament? Oh my gosh, did that not blow you away? Like Jesus is all over in the Old Testament because that's one thing that I'm hearing in culture right now too is, well, the Old Testament was the Old Testament. You know, we're just like the Jesus New Testament thing. And I'm like, what? You know, there's like, it's 10,000 miles deep in the Old Testament. So I just told Jim, I said, I'm so grateful. And after I listened to that podcast yesterday, I was like, I was so excited that I already knew that and that Jim had, had, and to step out in something that he's probably not heard because that's where the word led and there it is and dig into it. So thank you, my dear. So, so it's my goal each week to feed you all. And I, and, and I pray I'm doing that. And when Paula told me that it, it made me feel like, you know, I know I, I, you know, I'm not a, Chuck Swindoll or anybody like that, and um, but but I, I I feel confident that you you guys are hearing the word, and I try to do my best on that. Okay, here's the third thing, and we got to move quick now. No, it wasn't you. It's both of us. It's both of us. Here's the third thing that we need to know: there is time to turn from sin. There is time to turn from sin. So you have this woman called Jezebel in the church. She's leading people astray. She's teaching wicked stuff. She's, she's just wicked. But look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent. What? You would think Jesus is like, okay, no, 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 no. You're messing with my church. You're, you're leading people astray. You're Jezebel. You're done. And I'm, I'm, I'm. I gave her time to repent. Jesus gives her a window. He gives her opportunity. He gives this woman an opportunity to, I am sorry. I'm wrong. I've sinned, Jesus. I am so sorry. Man, that, that blew me away when I read that. But aren't we glad that Jesus gives us time? Aren't we glad that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve? Because here's the thing. If he treated us as our sins deserve, the moment you and I would sin, we were done. But he doesn't. He gives us time. And, and that's mercy. And, and he shows that mercy. And right now, we are living in a time. Until you have no breath in your lungs, a window of opportunity is open for you to turn from sin. Maybe today you are a believer in Christ and you have been sinning. You haven't confessed it. You, you just continue to live in it and you just aren't dealing with it. I'm telling you, there's a window of opportunity for you to come to the place to turn from it. To say, Jesus, forgive me. Again, we're all going to sin. We're all messing up. We're not perfect. But there are some of us who just live in it. And Jesus is saying, I've given you an opportunity. Turn from it. Or maybe today, here or listening online, you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. You know religion, you know whatever, but you've never come to the place where you've accepted Christ. There's a window of opportunity for you to do that, to accept Christ as your Savior, to realize I'm a sinner, I'm separated from Christ, and he died for me. The window's there. 
But notice what she does. So he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Refuses. I'm not doing it. You see, in her mind, I'm not doing anything wrong. What's, what's so wrong with what I'm doing? Who cares what I'm doing? The people like it. They're following me. So no, I'm not going to repent. And Jesus is like, I've given her an opportunity, but she's refusing. She's not going to do it. Man, how many of us do that sometimes? I'm telling you, there are Christians, and I have talked to them, who are living in blatant, open disobedience to God, living in sin, and you talk to them, and they'll say this. So? Who cares? I'm not doing anything wrong. I like where I'm at. I want to do this. And they refuse to repent. They think they're not doing anything wrong. I'm not the one wrong. You are, but not me. So I will not repent. Even as an unbeliever, you have... He gives you a choice. You see, he offered forgiveness to the woman, but she refuses. And can I tell you, there are unbelievers who refuse. Jesus is saying, you know what? You know, Peter makes it very clear. He says, um, God is patient with you, wanting no one to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But there are people who don't know Christ saying, no, don't need it, don't want it. I'm okay. And they keep refusing. They keep refusing. And the reality is that window will close. Because when you and I draw our last breath, there are no more opportunities. And so if you don't know Christ today, today needs to be that day. Today, if you are a believer and you are living in sin, you need to take advantage today. We can't confuse. Jesus gives us time to turn. And then here's the last thing. Divisiveness must be taken seriously. Divisiveness needs to be taken seriously. So again, in verse 20, Jesus says, you tolerate this woman who calls herself a prophetess, and she's teaching and seducing my servants. The NIV says that she's misleading his servants. The New American Standard says that she is leading his servants astray. Here's two reasons why we've got to be serious about division in the church and divisive people. One, it's because it's his church. He says, she is leading my people astray. This is his church it's not mine, it's not the elders, it's not yours. This is Jesus' church. So when people decide, hey, I'm going to teach in a way, I want to, I'm going to do something in the church, I'm going to cause people to sin in the church, I'm going to lead people away, whoa, that's a bad place to be because you're messing with whose church? God's church, Jesus' church, his church. And we all are his people. So when you have people saying, nope, I'm going to do this, it's a problem because it's his church. You see, we know this woman is causing division in the church because it says that she is, she's seducing, she's leading them astray. But if you look at verse 24, it says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold on to her teaching, 
okay? You've got a group of people holding on to her teaching, following her teaching, and then you have a group of people who aren't. So let's do this. Let's say this side, you're holding on to the teaching. This side, you're not. You all, you're following her, man. You're Jezebel disciples. You think she's great. You think her teaching's on. You're just following her, and you're following her. You all, you're like, no way, man. I'm, I'm following the pastor of the church. I'm following the elders because what she's doing is wrong. Let me ask you, is there unity in the church or division? Pure division. Split. Because you have someone in the church going, I'm going to teach. I'm going to do something because, listen, it's dangerous. She figured out how to split the church. And she brought division into it. And here's a second reason why you and I need to take this seriously. Because Jesus does. Jesus does not mess around with this stuff. So if you look at verse 22, and now this is where um, the, the feet of burnished bronze comes in. His authority, his power. In verse 22, he says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. And I will give to each according to your works. Let me ask you just a simple question. Um, is Jesus taking this seriously or not? He's not fooling around, is he? I mean... He's like, he's like, I will bring sickness into this woman's life. And all of those who are following her, they as well, tribulation will come into their life. I will make sure these people understand, you do not do this to my church. You see, his authority, his power, and his eyes are seeing this thing. And he is not messing around. Because it damages his church it hurts his church. It hurts his people. It causes people to fall into sin. When people want to be like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you see, and here's the thing. We see this with the other churches. Last week we looked at Pergamum, and you had the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the teaching of Baal. Both of those were causing division in the church. And Jesus told the church of Pergamum, I will war against you if I have to. And then at the book of, in the, in, in the church of Ephesus, Jesus commends them because they did not allow it to happen in the church. He goes, you hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You hate it when they come in to try to divide the church because I hate it too. You see, anything that is taught, anybody who tries to teach in a way that causes people to be led astray, Jesus is not liking it. He doesn't stand for it. And that's why even in Matthew chapter 18, verse 5, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. You see, Jesus is like, listen, the reality is there are things going to come into our lives into this church that's going to cause people to stumble. But Jesus is like, woe to the person who causes it. Woe to the individual who says, you know what? I am going to bring division into the church. And Jesus like, man, dude, it would be better just to put, tie a millstone around your neck, throw yourself off a bridge into the, into the ocean because you don't want to go down the path of me. Jesus takes it seriously. 
Even Paul takes it seriously. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes, he says, As for a person who stirs up divisions after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You see, Jesus calls a person who causes divisions warped and sinful. Now, I know some people are like, Jim, come on. Why do we need to make a mountain out of a molehill? Can't we just, you know, live and let live? Why do we got to stir up the pot? Because it damages churches. It causes churches to rip in half. It causes people to sin. And I'm telling you, if Jesus took it personally, if he takes it seriously, if the Apostle Paul takes it seriously, how can we not take it seriously? We can't turn a blind eye to vision. We can't turn a blind eye to someone who is teaching in a way where they are trying to attract people to themselves and away from the leadership of the church. We can't turn a blind eye to people who want to teach deceptive things in the church. We can't do it. We've got to handle it. We've got to take care of it. It's a dangerous thing. And that's what we got to know. We've got to know that divisiveness in the church has to be taken seriously. It's not an easy topic to talk about, but it's necessary. Because too many people get wounded when divisive people aren't dealt with. And we want to be a church where we are dealing with it. We're not letting it just slide by. We're not just letting sweeping it under the carpet thinking it's a no big deal. Man, we got to keep people protected. And the reality is Jesus loves his church and he's a crazy about his church and he goes after it. And if he's going after it, guess who we got to be getting after it too. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's close in a word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And um, Father, it's sometimes not easy to hear. And uh, Lord Jesus, just as you spoke to the the truth to Thyatira, and I know that truth has to speak to us. And Lord, help us to be people just like them who we continually grow and progressively change in our love, in our service, in our faith, in our perseverance. Help us to be those Christians that are are not just becoming stagnant, not just taking it easy, not calling it quits, not just coasting anymore, but Lord, progressively changing and growing. The Lord also help us to look at the rebuke. Help us not to tolerate bad teaching. Help us not to tolerate division. God, let us be a church that is unified, growing and learning the word well, Watching, making sure we're not seeing division in this place. Protect us, we pray, Lord. So God, we pray that you would be glorified in everything we do, glorified in everything we say, Father, that Lord Jesus, you are the the Lord of this church. And we want to bring you honor and glory and praise. And we just thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm